let's begin, Elf. Uh, what we've been doing is I've been trying, uh, especially spurred on by our participant from Jerusalem who asked the question, how can we <laughs> curb our tendency or uh, uh, possibility of uh, really allegorizing, that is reading in types when a type isn't there. <clears throat> so <clears throat> I've been giving you a number of criteria for, uh, uh, for this, how to control our tendencies to read types in. And so I've given uh, a number of criteria and um, <clears throat> the, uh, the first one was um, you have to have the five ingredients of the definition of a type and um, and then the second one was that you uh, have to have, if, if you find a fulfillment formula in the New Testament or something equivalent like that, it, you know, it, it is necessary uh, or equivalent expressions that make it clear that this is fulfillment and yet it's introducing an event, you've got a type <clears throat> or Often if the word tupos or its word group is used, and that may be an indicator too. Um, and then the second thing that we looked at, that, that there may be evidence of typological anticipation in the immediate context of some Old Testament passages. And uh, there we were looking, for example, at uh, Isaiah 22 and how it was patterned after um, the Messiah of chapter nine but that was about Eliakim, so that from the Old Testament author's vantage point, from his intention, <clears throat> you can see to some degree he had in mind that uh, Eliakim certainly was not the Messiah because he falls and another would come, i.e. one style like Eliakim, indeed the one who's like Eliakim from Isaiah 9. We also showed in the immediate context of the chapter 714 statement, uh, child be born in Saint Emmanuel, that that began to be fulfilled in Isaiah 8 and Isaiah's children, and yet they become uh, <coughs> types of the chapter 9 child. And again, it's the similarity of wording that, that we see. I think the chapter 8 child, the wording there, even called a sign later. Uh, uh, with, with a manual in the context, as well as a child born a son. That's the same wording as in chapter 7, 14. So I'm contending that eight is alluding back to seven, showing it's a beginning fulfillment. And then nine is the final fulfillment. It points toward nine. So that's how, how, how we can see, even from the author's vantage point, the author probably uh, had some degree of consciousness that uh, the events he was recording were uh, pointing forward, and, uh, and, and then a, a fourth element is even when the immediate context of a passage is done indicate that something is being viewed typologically from the Old Testament author's vantage point, uh, the wider uh, context of the Old Testament usually provides hints or indications, and um, <clears throat> uh, either the wider context of the book or of the um, um, of the Old Testament itself, 
And um, there we gave an example of uh, Abraham in chapter 12, and he goes in and out of Egypt. Uh, God plagues the Pharaoh. Pharaoh sends Abraham out. And in 15, we find a prophecy. They're going to go into Egypt. God's going to plague the Egyptians and bring them out. And so um, uh, probably uh, those two events are related. Abraham being the corporate representative. Um, uh, what's true of the one will be true of the many. And then that fits right in with the idea that what happens to Abraham in Egypt foreshadows <coughs> what will happen to um, <clears throat> Israel. And then uh, we saw, fifthly, the literary clustering of repeated commissions to prophets, priests, and kings. And um, uh, we were looking mainly at um, um, Gerhard von Rod. He's the only one who I've seen who's uh, really discussed that particular criterion. And um, I, I think it's very intriguing. So I think these are some uh, uh, ways that the authors, the authors composing those narratives to one degree or another saw that those narratives were not there just for themselves, uh, providing lessons for the Israelites, but they pointed forward. Now, now we're going to a sixth criteria, partially fulfilled Old Testament prophecies within the Old Testament itself point to a more complete um, fulfillment. And, uh, and actually, I want to, before that, I want to go to what's up there now, Old, Old Testament characters. I was jumping ahead. Now, before we go to this, any questions so far? Because <clears throat> in biblical studies and in, um, we talked about this movement, theological interpretation of scripture movement, there's a lot of debate about what is typology, what is allegory. Some just don't see the allegory and uh, typology overlap. Uh, and, and both have uh, the ideas that typology and allegory um, are reading in ideas to the Old Testament uh, that the human author had no idea about and might even contradict what the human author said. So this is why I'm being so, trying to be rigorous about the criteria here. Yeah, there's a difference between um, allegory. Allegory reads another meaning in. That's what it means. Remember allos with agoreo, uh, other, proclaiming, proclaiming, another reading. And whereas typology, the New Testament, what's fulfilled in the New Testament, what's foreshadowed arises out of the original intention of the author. <clears throat> Even in those cases where you may not uh, be able to discern if the human author was aware of the pointing forwardness, it still arises out of this intention. But I'm finding more and more that uh, there are hints, as we've been looking at, that there was that awareness. Any, any questions before we go to this criterion? Because this is uh, not easy stuff. Excuse me, can I ask a question? No, oh, you have to be in the classroom to ask a oh, question. Oh, I see. <laughs> Thank you. Um, can I ask what your view on, um, on the view of um, authorial intention is where the human author was perhaps writing more than 
what he knew. And, and I've heard, um, for instance, about Isaiah. I know we've looked at some of those passages uh, yesterday that, that he wrote. And, and some would say on occasions he wrote more than he knew. But, but that's an indication of the divine um, authorial intention. How does all of that feed into the question of typology and um, you know, allegory um, into this? Okay. Do we always have to uh, find, in other words, um, in, in your view, a human authorial intention as well for, for us to have a type? Uh, no, I don't think to have a type that the human author had to be aware of it, as I've just said. Uh, even when the author is not aware, if God has the higher intention that points forward, it still arises out of the original intention of the human author. But that I'm finding more and more hints, as I've been trying to argue here, that uh, Old Testament authors had some degree of awareness. Now, even when there's not a hint in the context that the uh, human Old Testament author uh, <clears throat> was aware of some element of anticipation, uh, we have to remember, and, and you mentioned this, that uh, what someone says doesn't exhaust the meaning, or what someone writes does not exhaust their meaning, so that one is aware uh, of more than what they're saying, or aware of more than what they're writing. I've given the example uh, uh, several times here. <laughs> it often happens in classes. It's happened in the classes of yours, um, and, and even in this present class. The professor will say something, the student says, well, now, do you think uh, that it means this? And I would answer, oh, yeah, I think it, it means that, but that was not my major point. So um, it, this happens all the time in life when we, we make statements. If you really analyze what you're saying, <clears throat> when you say something to a person, often you mean more than just the words that are said. Now, if you're interested and you really want to go further into this. Um, I've written uh, uh, an essay, I mentioned this once, uh, it's called The Cognitive Peripheral Vision of Biblical Writers, Thinking Mainly of Old Testament Writers, Cognitive Peripheral Vision of Old Testament Writers. I was going to lecture on this, but I just don't have time. But it's in the Westminster Theological Journal, three or four, you know, maybe, could have been 2015, 2016, but Westminster Theological Journal. Um, <clears throat> Where, where I talk about the idea that uh, uh, an Old Testament writer may express what's uh, in his, his main focus, but then there are other things in his peripheral vision that uh, could be included that he's not expressing. Just you're driving down the street, you're focusing on the cards ahead, but you are aware uh, in your secondary or tertiary focus in your peripheral vision of other things. Um, so uh, I think uh, I'll leave it at uh, if that. You, you want to press me a little more? Anything I didn't address on what you just said? No, thank you. I think that was a very helpful clarification and you know, bringing together some of the threads. So that, that's good. Thank you. Feel free as time goes if you want to ask more along those lines, because this is, in my opinion, exceedingly important. And again, I will say, I do not think that um, Biblical scholarship has really rigorously tried to see in these contexts where the New Testament sees types. Uh, scholars, I don't think, have done a lot of exegesis in the context to see are there hints that the author may have uh, uh, been 
thinking that this narrative is not just for lessons for itself, but it points forward. More work needs to be done. I'm just giving you some of the work I've begun to do. Scholars have not been doing this. And, and it's because of a presupposition that typology is something that was not part of the author's intention. So why, why look in the context, you see? Um, so let's, uh, let's look at this. Uh, our Old Testament characters styled according to the pattern of earlier characters who are viewed as types of Christ in the New Testament. <clears throat> Remind me when we finish. What, what, when we? 11 for break. 11, thank you. Um, now, I, I contended, uh, and, and part of what I'm contending here is that uh, the type the New Testament gives us are not the only types that there are in the Old Testament. And that when you preach or teach the Old Testament, I think part of our task is, yes, to exegete, but to see, could, could this narrative, not just a single uh, a verse, <coughs> could this narrative uh, be foreshadowing something in the New Testament? And um, <clears throat> so how, how can we be confident to find uh, types uh, that the New Testament doesn't see. This is one of the main criteria. criteria. And, um, and so uh, if you can find a uh, <clears throat> a character, let's say let's say uh, um, you're, you're, you're studying um, Joshua, as I mentioned, and um, the New Testament does not mentioned Joshua as a type. Um, but if Joshua is styled after someone else in the, New Testament, in the Old Testament, who's clearly a type in the New Testament, then, you know, he's a good uh, uh, candidate for being a type. And so what Joshua is styled after Moses, he's a second Moses, very clear. Most commentators, many will tell you that. Uh, he takes on the mantle of Moses as a second Moses. And so he's a great candidate for a type. And so here, what we find is uh, Noah is styled after Adam. Let's just look at each of these right here. The waters cover the earth on creation. Spirit hovers, dry land emerges. Old world is finished. God rests. Well, look at um, Noah here. The flood waters cover the earth. Noah hovers over the waters, emerges to dry land present world, finish, uh, and an offering of rest is given. And again, remember, I've given you these PDFs, so I don't have to write the chart down. Um, so those are uncanny parallels. Again, notice uh, as we go to the second column, um, a new Adam Manry. Let's see. Sorry. So man first commissioned God's image, man to fill the earth, uh, animals for Adam to name. And then um, man recommissioning God's image, new command to fill earth, animals for, uh, animals for Adam to say. Now some of these are, are very linguistically parallel, like new commissioning and the image, new command to fill the earth. Um, <clears throat> Some are conceptual parallels. Um, so we'll come back. 
the fall. Adam sinned in the garden. Adam takes fruit of the knowledge, naked and ashamed, naked and sin covered, seed cursed. We go to Noah. Noah sinned in a vineyard. Noah takes fruit of a vine. Again, the same words aren't used as in Genesis, but the concepts are, are uncannily similar. Naked and ashamed. Remember? Nakedness covered. Seed cursed. Those are more than coincidental parallels. Um, and so, <clears throat> um, come to the. Uh, Mr. Bill. Yeah. Does that mean that the fruit of the garden wasn't an apple? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. These are uh, they're parallels, but they're not precise. It's not the same <laughs> words. <laughs> See what we're doing here. Okay. Um, okay. Not working real well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Seed uh, conflict. Cain founds a wicked city of Enoch, except against the name of the Lord. Sons of God are enticed by the daughters. Uh, of men, then we go to um, Noah. Noah's sons found the wicked city of Babel. Abram begins to call on the name of the Lord. Sons of Zion enticed by harlot Babel. That, yeah, I don't know, you know, I'm not sure about that one. Um, but what's interesting here, let's go back to the this one. Um, the days of Noah. Uh, come on the earth. Okay, this is the first world. What we're really looking at is the first world and the second world. And so, in the first world, the days of Noah come upon the earth. God brings a cloud uh, to the earth to destroy with flood waters, old heavens and earth pass away. Because, in a real sense, the old heavens and earth pass away, don't they? Not, not, not completely, but, but in a general sense. The earth is renovated. And now with Noah, okay. uh, you have the days of Noah will again be upon the earth. Now we're moving on into the New Testament here, okay? We're in the second world. The days of Noah will again be upon the earth. God comes in clouds to destroy the wicked with fire. We're in the New Testament. Present heavens and earth pass away. Now, why do Jesus and the New Testament writers believe that there's going to be a final cataclysmic destruction or renovation of the earth, depending on your eschatology? Um, why do they believe that? Uh, I think it's because they believe that the second world was modeled on the first world. So you see, you know, the uh, uh, second Adam of the first world styled on the first Adam and so on. And that the first world ended in cosmic capitalism. The second world um, must also end that way. And, uh, and so I think the basis for them believing that there must be a, a cataclysm at the end of the second world 
And the reason they predict these things is because the first world ended that way. So that the first world um, is, is a foreshadowing of the second. Not only first Adam and second Adam in all those ways, recommissioning, et cetera, but um, uh, I, I think this, is, this gives us a good explanation even on ex, uh, eschatology here. Yes. Doesn't, I mean, God promises not to flood the world again. <laughs> You're right. Um, it, is there a sense in which, therefore, perhaps they wouldn't have expected a cataclysmic event? Well, they would have by fire. But by fire rather than water. Yes. Yeah, but the but the parallel is cosmic cataclysm. Okay. Okay. So um, you got it. Didn't mean to spit. Didn't mean to spit your question. Was, yeah, it's just astonishment. My question. No, no, <laughs> not at all. Um, so the parallel is cosmic cataclysm, not the specific way that it occurs. Okay. So um, thank you so much for that. Uh, but really, the reason that I introduced this was just to say that Noah is uh, probably a type of Christ because he's an Adamic figure. Now, he's not the last Adam, he's not the second Adam that's reserved for Christ, but he is an Adam figure. The mantle of Adam passes on to him, especially with the, um, with the commission. And it's interesting <clears throat> that the... Um, uh, if you look at these parallels here, that they actually uh, give us theological categories, theology proper, anthropology, harmartiology, redemption, and judgment slash eschatology uh, in, in, in each of these. So that's very, uh, very interesting. And whereas source critics like to divide all this stuff up, this shows a unity to the Pentateuch, at least in, in, in the first uh, 11 chapters. Um, so, so the idea is that Noah's world is a reduplicative chronicle of Adam's first world, and it's a type of it, but more specifically, certainly Adam is a foreshadowing of Noah, and both are foreshadowing of Christ um, because they fail to carry out the commission. Um, so, uh, same thing with uh, Joshua. So, um, so we can uh, go to uh, a number of characters. Again, take Eliakim, right? Eliakim is style after the Messiah. And so he's a great candidate for a type. Uh, any questions on that? That's a, I think it's a very important criterion here to discern candidates for types. Because what we're trying to do is control uh, errant and wild typology. Yeah. When you say the second world, is it spiritually or physically? Both. Oh. Yeah, because you're talking about the, the first world is basically um, uh, destroyed by flood, then you get a new world. Yeah. I mean, how many. <laughs> How, how clear does it have to be that, you know, because you're, you're kind of going through two lenses of you're saying, is Christ back to the original, the, the, new, the type, the New Testament type in the Old Testament, 
and then another one who's like the first type. So, you know, like, I imagine you could do this, you couldn't tabulate it so neatly for many other characters. Well, is that how, how, how clearly, you know what I mean? Is there, if it's, for example, if you, if you look at the good commentators, <laughs> whether it's Wenham, even some Jewish commentators, they'll see these parallels between Adam and Noah. They may not see everything you saw in that chart. That actually comes from a fellow by the name of Austin Gage, Warren Austin Gage, of the Gospel of Genesis, published by uh, um, Eisenbrons. But they'll, they'll see this, okay? So it just depends. Again, it's sort of like what we've been talking about. How can you be sure there's a, an illusion, right. okay? You know, there's so many verbal, linguistic, and conceptual parallels between Adam and Noah, highly probable. Noah's styled after Adam, and therefore probably like Adam, he's a type. Now, you know, if, if you find someone that, well, maybe he looks kind of like this character is clearly a type of Christ, but I'm not sure. It's a matter of possibilities and probabilities. How many, how many parallels you can get? We were really debating that a little bit with the life. Um, hmm, did we have enough parallels there? Now, I contended that we did. Actually, I went back. The only place in all of Isaiah where you have throne and David is here in, in this text. It does occur quite a bit in Kings and Chronicles, okay, and in Jeremiah. But never do you find father with regard to father of the nation. You do find David's father of Solomon, but that's different. And so, um, so I think I'm just a I wanted to go back and, and make sure I, I didn't have the complete concordance in my mind, but I, I thought I remembered that the combination of throne and David did not occur anywhere else in Isaiah. So, and it didn't. So, um, so it's, it's an art, not a science. Excuse me? It's an art, it's not a science. In the sense that it's not like it's know, a matter of you get to 10. See, it's, it, it, it is a science in the sense of the more parallels you can get. Um, the more probable it is, but it's not a science in the sense that can we say it's 80% probable? Is it set? You see what I'm saying? So, yeah, there's a little bit of, of, of an art there. Um, and so it is also, we're speaking of characters child after others also, because then we're really saying that that character not only is styled, but there's really an allusion back to the earlier character, right? So, we're talking about illusions. And you can have a one-word illusion. Yesterday, I said that amen, uh, when Jesus calls himself the amen. There's only one place in all of the Old Testament where God's called amen, Isaiah 65, 16. Uh, so I'm, I'm confident that that is an illusion. But that's usually, you read most people in Old Testament and say, oh, you know, <laughs> two, three, four words for an illusion. Well, it just depends on how unique it is. It's uniqueness. And then a thing is the same. So... Um, yeah, I, I, I can't produce, you know, formulas in that sense, it's not a science, but I can, uh, uh, I, I, I can say if, you know, the uniqueness, I mean, can, can I say that uh, I'm 100% sure that amen is an illusion to Isaiah 65, uh, 16? No, I'm 98% sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, pretty, pretty high up there, okay. So good question. All right. Now, um, the next one, next criteria. Uh, no, no more questions. We got to go on here. I'm kidding. Yeah. Just a quick one on Joseph. 
don't know what he comes on this, but thinking about this parallel with the two characters, yeah, Jonathan, if we do see Joseph as a type of is, is, does that fit with him? I'm trying to think. Of, I can't remember if Joseph is modeled on anybody. Um, again, I think the spell's name is Imadi. E M A D I. He's got it's a biblical theology of Joseph and, and the New Studies in Biblical Theology. I, I read the dissertation, I was an outside reader, and it's very good. And he really did a great job of showing in, in various ways that Joseph was a type. I can't remember if one of those was that he was styled on someone earlier. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. So it could be, yeah. It, it is true that you can find some illusions applied to Joseph that ultimately <coughs> emanate from Genesis 1.8. So that's interesting, but they are subtle, they're subtle. Um, okay, um, so the next one then, uh, the events of partially fulfilled Old Testament prophecies within the Old, within the Old Testament itself point to a more complete fulfillment. Um, and one of the uh, things that is uh... <laughs> yeah. Um, that this should be under expected restoration fulfillment should be under um, not H, but it should be under G. So events of partially fulfilled Old Testament prophecies within the Old Testament itself point to a more complete fulfillment. So now let's, uh, we're going to look at H in a moment. Let's, this is an illustration of uh, partially fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. Um, and, and actually, I want to pull that off for one moment. Um, <clears throat> what was to happen? And I, I, this is a little pop quiz here. I want us to put our heads together. What was to happen when Israel was to be restored to their land? What are the things that were to happen? And I'm thinking here, for example, there was to be a big temple, right? So what were the kinds of things uh, there were a number of things that would happen when Israel returned to its land. Anybody? Uh, excellent. In fact, the Messiah. Okay. The restoration of sacrifice. Um, well, that there was to be a definitive atonement because of Isaiah 53. Okay. There was to be a definitive atonement. Yeah. By the Messianic servant. So, yes. Yeah, very good, because that's right. In the, that, that's part, most people don't see that as the restoration of Israel. Isaiah 53 is part of the restoration of Israel. We just look at, up oh, salvation of Christians. No, in its context, that's restoration of Israel. Um, what else? No idolatry. Idolatry? No idolatry. No idolatry. Good, yeah, yeah, no more idolatry. The passage about the highway between Assyria and Egypt relates well, it might be. I mean, I'd have, to, I'd have to see how many. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Now, what now? The nations? Yes, you have the nations flowing in. Okay. <laughs> the nations are going to flow in and benefit from this. Good. What else? Lasting peace, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Lasting peace, mainly due to the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, 
no, no more um, outside nations uh, oppressing Israel. Okay, no more outside oppression. No more outside. Exactly. Well, they're being restored. Exactly. Yeah. Anything else? New heart. New heart. Well, yes, according to uh, the new covenant prophecy of Jeremiah um, 31, especially Ezekiel chapter 36. So let's look at some of those. Um, so actually, there's going to be a resurrection, a new creation. Um, so we mentioned some of these. New covenant, part of what you meant with the new part. No foreign powers. We talked about that. Temple, I mentioned that. Definitive forgiveness, we mentioned most of them. There were also to be uh, amazing, miraculous events, according to Isaiah 32, uh, where the lame would be healed and uh, the blind would receive their sight. None of that happened when Israel returned to the land. None of it. They built a temple, but it was so pathetic. The elders who knew of the other temple cried. Um, and then it, it eventually is destroyed, isn't it? Even though they try to expand and expand and, 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 and bring eschatology in. Herod tries to by making it bigger and bigger because the temple was to get bigger and bigger in the eschaton, and then it's finally destroyed. It keeps adding on to it uh, pathetically. Um, so none of these, uh, even though Jeremiah says they'll return after 70 years, is this a falsification of the prophecy then? Is Jeremiah wrong? That's very interesting. How would you deal with that? Yeah, I do. I, I deal with it in this way. It was a partial fulfillment because they do return to the land. All right. They do return to the land. <laughs> and there is a believing remnant that do return to the land. But none of these things are fulfilled. It is a faint fulfillment so that Jeremiah's prophecy is more ultimately fulfilled. Yes, it begins fulfillment, but that lack of fulfillment event points to the greater fulfillment. And um, which all of a sudden in the Gospels, Jesus starts quoting, uh, uh, not coincidentally, restoration prophecies throughout throughout his ministry. I could point to a number of them if, you, if you're curious. It doesn't take long to look at Matthew to find restoration prophecies. We'll look at one of them in Matthew 4 from Isaiah 61. He says the Spirit's upon me. Remember that. So, um, so uh, the big question is, does the restoration begin at the first coming or the second coming? Dispensationalists believe second coming. Jesus believed in the first coming. Um, yeah, if the dispensationalists were here, I probably wouldn't put it that way. Um, but, and if you dispensationalists, forgive me. Um, so, um, so that's that's a very uh, a very good example, I think. Um, uh, by the way, another example of uh, these partially fulfilled prophecies: the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. It comes, but it's not doesn't seem to completely fulfill what was prophesied of the day of the Lord. And let's look at an example, chapter 13 of Isaiah. Turn there with me, chapter 13 of Isaiah. Hmm. 
And here we have the verse one, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos saw. So this is all, this whole chapter is about the destruction and judgment of Babylon. But look with me at verse nine. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. There you have it. Day of the Lord, cruel with fury, burning anger to make a land of desolation. He'll exterminate the sinners from, from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. For I'll punish the world for its evil, the wicked for its, uh, their iniquity. Uh, verse 13, I'll make the heavens tremble. The earth will be shaken from its place. And so what's going on here? The day of the Lord seems like it's going to be a universal catastrophe. It doesn't happen when Israel is, when Babylon is destroyed. However, it's a little bit more complex than that. When you study this language of stars falling, of uh, 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 the heavens being um, uh, shaken, the sun being dark, moon not shedding its light, uh, foundations of the earth shaken, etc. That language is what I call cosmic conflagration language. And the reason I give that name to it is because it's an idiom throughout the Old Testament. You can find it massively throughout the Old Testament. And um, most of the time it's figurative. It's figurative for the destruction of a nation like Egypt, like Babylon, like Assyria, even Israel. And so it is not literally fulfilled. And so then we have to ask, why would you use into the world language to describe the the feet of a nation. And uh, G.B. Carey addresses this book in the language and imagery of the Bible. Very good book. If you don't have it, you should have it. And um, in there, he says that the authors of the Bible were aware of a beginning and an ending. And, uh, and what they would do is take into the world language and apply it to the destruction of various nations uh, to show that this is like what's going to happen later. And it happens so much that it begins to cry out that what you see in this nation micro, mi microcosmically is going to happen macrocosmically at the very end. So I would say here that this language, yes, it's used figuratively, but there is a sense that it points forward to a time when it will occur macrocosmically and literally. Yeah. Is, that, uh, is John chapter 10 of Revelation drawing on this when he said that the stars will fall as when the trees, the fig trees shaken by the wind? And the kings of the. You sure you're thinking of chapter 10? That's where John's commission. Uh, you're thinking of chapter 8? Um, we're only part of the stars shine. Well, see me at the break about it, okay? Because I need to, uh, before we break, I just need to um, go to uh, the last criterion, which let me see if I have it up here. No, don't pay attention to that. Um, so the last, the last criterion is this, and I don't have it on the PDFs. It's uh, Large or significant events of historical narration are possible candidates for uh, narratives that point forward. So large or significant events of historical narration, even if they're not cyclic, are candidates. 
like David and Goliath and the crushing of his head. Uh, Haman and Mordecai. Again, these, these, these are possibilities. Uh, I would have to do more work to uh, make it convincing for you. So uh, we'll take a break.